0: Well, you've heard of Galileo, right? The famous uh, physicist and engineer. Uh, He's been called the father of observational astronomy. Uh, He's been called the father of modern era classical physics uh, and of the scientific method and of modern science. So a pretty impressive guy, I would say, Galileo was. Uh, Among his contributions to observational astronomy are he was the first one to discover uh, Jupiter's four largest moons and Saturn's rings and he uh, performed studies on the the craters on the moon and even on sunspots. Uh, So his contributions to science were enormous. But he got himself in trouble with the Roman Catholic Church for supporting Copernicus's theory that the earth revolved around the sun. So uh, in 1615, Galileo was investigated by a body called the Roman Inquisition. That sounds terrifying, doesn't it? Uh, The Roman Inquisition, they were a body that prosecuted crimes against church law and church doctrine. And they concluded that the idea that the earth revolves around the sun is foolish, it's absurd, and it's heretical since it contradicts scripture. And that's because of how they read the scriptures. For example, Psalm 104, verse 5 says, The Lord set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. Or Ecclesiastes 1.5, And the sun rises and sets and returns to its place. And so the church interpreted those verses to mean that the earth is fixed in place and the sun must revolve around the earth. And Galileo said, no, uh, that's not how it's meant to be read. Galileo said the authors of scripture were writing from a human perspective, from what we can see. And so from our perspective, uh, it appears that the sun revolves around the earth, but uh, actually uh, the earth revolves around the sun and his observations proved it. Well, the Pope and the church leaders refused uh, to believe that. And the Roman Inquisition found Galileo, uh, check this conviction out, vehemently suspect of heresy, vehemently suspect of heresy. That's that's what they found. And they condemned him to house arrest uh, for the rest of his life because he was a danger if he was going to go out and teach that the earth revolved around the sun. Well, why would they do that? It was because they were in power. The church was in power, and they refused to believe anything that was new, even when uh, Galileo's observations proved it. So they were fixed in their own tradition. They misinterpreted scripture. It never once crossed their mind that maybe God gave man the ingenuity to invent the telescope so that man could study uh, the stars and God's creation and reach conclusions that were true about it and uh, that were true about the God who uh, creation reveals. And as it turned out, Galileo was right about everything he said. Just like... Uh, when Jesus challenged the scribes and the Pharisees 1,600 years earlier. The scribes and Pharisees were also so fixed on their traditions uh, that when Jesus came, they refused to believe him. Uh, They refused to believe their own eyes when he performed miracles in their own sight. Uh, They thought he was heretical, uh, like the uh, church thought that Galileo was heretical, because his teaching clashed with their religious practices. And so the Pharisees closed their eyes, their ears, and their hearts to everything, excuse me, that Jesus taught. So we are in a section of uh, Mark's gospel right now uh, where Mark details five separate controversies that Jesus's teachings and miracles caused. And last week we talked about Jesus's healing the paralytic and forgiving his sins. And then we talked about how Jesus called the much hated uh, Levi uh, and then ate with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, And then this week we'll look at the, the other three controversies. He didn't fast when the the Pharisees thought he should fast. And then there were a couple of Sabbath controversies where his disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. And then Jesus himself uh, healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And so the, the point that Mark is making throughout here is that the Pharisees refused to believe that Jesus could be the Messiah sent from God because he didn't conform to their religious practices. Uh, And so Jesus goes on to show that their man-made religious practices uh, were wrong, just like Galileo's adversaries were wrong. And so their preconceived notions of who the Messiah was going to be hardened their hearts. So we'll look at these three controversies today, uh, beginning with this controversy about fasting. And this is chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Uh, John's disciples... And the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the groom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with him, with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So here we have a controversy about fasting. Do you know how many biblically prescribed fasts there are? There's only one. Only one biblically prescribed mandated fast, and that's on the Day of Atonement. That's from Leviticus chapter 16. Now, that's not to say that there's anything wrong with fasting. Of course, it's good to fast and replace food with prayer uh, when you're trying to draw near to God for some particular season or perhaps in a time of mourning or a time of great need or a time of repentance. Uh, So there's nothing wrong with fasting at all. In fact, Jesus assumed fasting. He said, when you fast... Uh, Do not be like the the Pharisees who contort their faces so that you'll know that they're fasting. So so Jesus had nothing against fasting, of course. Uh, What he had something against was the legalism of the scribes and Pharisees' fasting that required everyone to fast the way they did. And so the Pharisees fasted every Monday and every Thursday in addition to uh, fasting on the Day of Atonement. And uh, you may remember the parable of the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee. Remember how proud uh, the Pharisee was, uh, you know, looking up to God, beating his breast, saying, thank God I am not like other sinners. I'm like this tax collector here. I fast two times a week, and that's where that comes from. They fasted on Monday and Thursday, and he he thought that that made him righteous. So uh, that Monday and Thursday fasting is a man-made rule. The Pharisees made that rule. The Bible never says that it's required that you fast twice a week, and it surely doesn't approve of uh, fasting the way the Pharisees did, uh, making such a show of it so that everybody would know that they were fasting. So their question to Jesus is why John's disciples fast, why the Pharisees fast, uh, but Jesus didn't fast. And so the undertone of that question, of course, is uh, why don't you fast like we do? Uh, If you're a man of God, as you claim to be, you will follow our religious practices, all of them. Uh, And so that's the undertone. And it's interesting to me that John's disciples are part of this, John the Baptist's disciples. Uh, I think they were probably there more out of curiosity than accusing, as the Pharisees were, Uh, but they were there. Uh, I think they were probably just genuinely curious, Uh, and they may have even been fasting themselves because John the Baptist at this time was in prison. So Jesus answers uh, with a a counter-argument, comparing himself to a bridegroom at a wedding, now, in that culture, weddings lasted a week. Uh, it was a party. Uh, weddings were a party. And so uh, you'll remember that, that uh, when the wine ran out uh, in Cana at that wedding in John chapter 2, uh, that was a, d- a disaster and a humiliation uh, for the hosts of that wedding. Uh, they needed to have enough wine to last a full week. And so, uh, because the weddings were a party, a seven-day party. So uh, it would have been culturally inappropriate to fast during the the seven-day wedding, uh, because that would be indicating that this is a time of sadness rather than a time of gladness. Uh, The fact that the groom was present and the wedding was going on was a time uh, where it indicates great rejoicing. And so uh, they they had that part of it wrong. So Jesus chooses to use this analogy of himself as a bridegroom, which is very interesting because uh, he's making a claim When when he calls himself a bridegroom, he chooses this analogy because he's making a claim, equating himself with God. Now, several times in the Old Testament, uh, God used this analogy uh, of himself as a husband uh, to idolatrous uh, Israel. For example, the entire book of Hosea is built around that imagery. God, uh, the husband of idolatrous uh, Israel. Uh, It's also present in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. And Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So these Pharisees would not have missed this parallel that Jesus was drawing between himself and God. It was a claim that he uh, was a husband as God was a husband. And not only that, but Jesus was announcing that his arrival was a time of celebration. It wasn't a time of mourning or fasting. And the Pharisees were all about these rules and these penalties for failure to keep the rules. And you can imagine what a joyless existence that this must have been. Uh, and Jesus' is coming and, and bringing in this new kingdom uh, should have been a joyful time, uh, but they made it a joyless time, their rules preventing, preventing them from receiving Jesus. So they should not fast when the bridegroom, Jesus, is with them. Uh, but there will come a day uh, when Jesus is no longer with them, and they will fast on that day. That would be the appropriate time when the bridegroom is no longer there. And this here is the first hint that we get in the Gospel of Mark uh, that Jesus is not going to be with them forever. Now from here, Jesus tra- uh, tra- uh, kind of moves on, kind of, kind of transitions to, to a couple of parables that he tells to explain this, to reinforce, uh, the newness of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought and the practices around them. So he tells the, the, the parable of the patch, uh, the, old, the, the, the new uh, patch on an old garment, and uh, the parable of the wineskins. So uh, the patch first. You, you would not put uh, a piece of unshrunk garment on an old garment that had already shrunk because that patch would then tear and rip away from the rest of the garment. And you wouldn't put new wine into old wineskins because wine expands during fermentation. And if a wineskin had already been used, it would already have expanded to its limit. So to put new wine into that old wineskin would cause that wineskin to burst. It would not have any more room to expand, so it would burst and all that new wine uh, would be wasted. And so what's the point? The point of these parables is that Jesus, what he brought was something new that was incompatible with the old way of doing things. Jesus came to usher in a new kingdom and a new covenant, not based on the law of Moses, but based on grace through faith in Jesus. And Jesus wants us to know that that this new covenant of grace, it does not merge or mix or get added onto the old covenant. Uh, That would be like trying to patch an old garment with a new patch or trying to put new wine in old wineskins. It doesn't work. A worse tear will result. The wineskins will burst and the wine will be wasted. So Jesus is bringing in a new covenant uh, that will be uh, ushered in by his blood. Uh, Jesus fulfilled this old covenant. Uh, That's Matthew 5. Jesus is the end of the old covenant. That's Romans chapter 10. And the Mosaic law is fading away. That is Hebrews chapter 8. And so uh, he's teaching them about this new kingdom. It's not like the old kingdom that he is ushering in. And of course, this would be a very difficult concept for these people who had been steeped in the law since birth, uh, since their ancestors' birth, uh, and especially since Jesus hadn't yet died and risen from the dead, uh, so that this teaching uh, could be uh, shown in in Jesus' resurrection, uh, that something new had come. But Jesus was a teaching that his arrival signaled something new uh, and it made the old covenant obsolete. And so uh, we've talked uh, in the past in here when we did our series in Romans and we did our series in Galatians, there was a lot about uh, law and grace and the contrast between them. Uh, so law is, is trying to earn salvation by works, uh, which we could never do. Whereas grace is receiving the gift of salvation, uh, the, the gift that God freely gives us, through faith. And so Jesus was correcting the Pharisees uh, and showing them that that their thinking about the law uh, was not right. Uh, He was ushering in a new way of salvation that is bought by the blood of Christ, not earned by keeping a long checklist of rules. Now, we are in the season of Lent right now, right? Lent is the 40 days that leads up to Easter Sunday. And every year when Lent comes around, I personally marvel at the hypocrisy of some uh, who uh, celebrate Fat Tuesday uh, the day before Ash Wednesday with all the gusto they can possibly muster, uh, and then they get ashes on their head on Wednesday and then don't eat meat on Fridays. Now, Fat Tuesday is the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, and and, uh, some people plan to give up certain Uh, foods or habits or sins even for the 40 days uh, leading up to uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, And so what they do is on Fat Tuesday, they go nuts because they're not going to be able to indulge in these things for the next 40 days. And so, you know, if you want to get ashes on your head on Ash Wednesday, that's fine. And if you want to give up something for Lent, That's fine as well, Uh, but it's not fine to think that you're earning any points with God, any favor with God, especially if you sinned like the devil on Fat Tuesday uh, the day before to get it out of your system before Ash Wednesday. So do you think that 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 pleases God? Is that pleasing to God? Of course not. It just reinforces that man-made rules and legalism can never satisfy God. Only faith in Jesus Christ can satisfy God and take away the penalty that we owe for our sins. So the sin of Fat Tuesday and the piety of Ash Wednesday are incompatible, just like new patches on old garments and new wine on old wineskins are incompatible. The Old Covenant has passed away, having been fulfilled in the New Covenant by the blood of Christ. So this is how Jesus answers their questions about fasting. Uh, And so now we're going to have two separate incidents, episodes, uh, controversies about the Sabbath. And the first one is picking grain on the Sabbath. Uh, This is from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 27. And it happened as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him? Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." You know, you could write the Ten Commandments on an index card if you wanted to, right? There's just not that much text there. Uh, But the scribes added tons of laws and regulations to the Ten Commandments so that you would need volumes to read all of their editions and their commentaries and their interpretations of the Ten Commandments. So, for example, Exodus chapter 20, verse 10 says, uh, there shall be no work done on the Sabbath, It prohibited Sabbath work. Now, this uh, prohibition, Uh, was from God to the people of Israel as a special gift. He didn't give that prohibition to any other of the peoples of the world. It was a command to rest, uh, to take a, a break from their labors, and to trust in God's provision. And what the scribes and Pharisees did was they took that commandment and they listed 39 different kinds of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And the third item on their list was reaping, reaping. So reaping is using a sickle to harvest an entire field of grain. That's what reaping is. And the Pharisees characterized the disciples going around and, you know, rubbing a couple grains of, head, uh, grains of wheat and eating that. Uh, they charged uh, that as reaping, and then they charged Jesus with violation of the Sabbath. Now, it's really hard to believe that what the disciples did could be characterized as reaping. Uh, you reap a harvest right you don't reap a snack it's a big difference and so Jesus had different views on the Sabbath uh, than the Pharisees did Jesus saw the Sabbath as a gift from God a to the people and the Pharisees saw it as a law to be kept in the strictest possible manner uh, and to oppress the people with it and so Jesus's answer to the question shows the priority of human need over ceremonial laws and it proves that the the Sabbath was made for man and not man to serve the Sabbath. And so he refers to this incident that is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, The consecrated bread was 12 loaves of bread that were put on a table uh, in the tabernacle each Sabbath to symbolize God's presence and God's provision. And that bread was only for the priests. Only the priests could eat that bread. But David and his men showed up and they were hungry. And so uh, they ate those loaves, even though David was not a priest and nor were any of his men. And Jesus implied that they were justified in eating those loaves because they were hungry, emphasizing the point that human need trumps the ceremonial laws uh, when they are in conflict. And so Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their nitpicking rules that burden people and would rather have people starve uh, than uh, to violate their rules of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees' rules were so burdensome, and they oppressed the people, and they misinterpreted God's purposes for the Sabbath. And so Jesus proclaimed uh, that the Sabbath was made for man, uh, to give man a rest, to give him uh, a day, to, to, to uh, take a day off from his labors. And so man was not made to serve the Sabbath the way the Pharisees were insisting that they did. Uh, The Sabbath was uh, made to serve man. And so as usual, the Pharisees, they got everything backwards. Their their, their legalism burdened the people uh, rather than freeing them to rest as God intended. So uh, the, the Sabbath is made to serve man, not vice versa. And then Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, that... That's a claim, right? That is a big leap forward in Jesus' claim of authority. Uh, that would elevate him above the law, uh, and that would really be saying something. Uh, so uh, so far in, in Mark's gospel, we're only three chapters in, not even, and, and he's already demonstrated his authority over demons and sickness and paralysis, leprosy, and even in the forgiving of sins. But now to claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath uh, is a claim that, that would be reserved only for God. Only God could be Lord of the Sabbath. And so uh, Jesus kind of runs with that and and challenges the Pharisees' authority by revoking uh, the laws that they had added to God's law. And that really rankled the Pharisees. They were really upset by that. And so they began to watch him even more closely than they had been watching him. And that leads us to the second Sabbath controversy, which is the healing on the Sabbath, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. He entered a synagogue again. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might put him to death. So Jesus's fame was growing. Uh, He seemed to be looking for opportunities now to to have conflict with the Pharisees. And the thing to notice here is that the, the opposition from the Pharisees has ramped up. Uh, Before this, they were witnesses, and now they're becoming conspirators. Uh, They're trying to figure out what Jesus would do with the intent of of accusing him of violating the Sabbath, which of course is a capital crime. You could be put to death for violating the Sabbath. And so Jesus knew all this, of course, and he did not back down uh, from the challenge. He called the man with the withered hand front and center. Now, The synagogue in Capernaum and the layout of most uh, synagogues was basically the same. Uh, A teacher stood near the middle of the room and people sat along the walls, along benches. So you could imagine it in this room. Imagine we just had benches along this wall and I came down there and stood in the middle of you all. That's what it would look like. Uh, This is what the synagogue in Capernaum looked like. Uh, It's kind of an aerial view. Uh, And these are the style of benches that line the walls for people to sit and listen. So Jesus is standing in the middle of the room. There are benches around the four walls. And here's Jesus. He calls up this man with the withered hand. And I'm sure that when he did that, you could have heard a pin drop because they all knew he had a withered hand. Uh, What was Jesus going to do? Uh, And so, Uh, tension uh, would have been palpable uh, because the Pharisees knew that Jesus could heal this man because they'd seen him do healings in the past. And and I wonder what they were thinking. Were they hoping he would heal the man so that they would have another basis for accusation? Or were they hoping he wouldn't heal the man so that they wouldn't have to deal uh, with this challenge to their authority? But the thing not to miss though, is that there they are like on the edge of their seats, waiting to pounce, right? They're ready to accuse him of violating the Sabbath. And what about Jesus for his point? You know, he could have waited till the next day, right? I mean, the the guy had a withered hand for a very long time. He didn't have to be healed that day. Why did Jesus heal that day? Well, Jesus was not looking to avoid conflict with the Pharisees. He was looking to stoke the conflict. He wanted to challenge their views of the Sabbath. And if he waited, uh, he would have just been agreeing with them that it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath. Uh, So if he waited, uh, then uh, his opportunity to heal on the Sabbath and correct the Pharisees would have been lost. He wanted to show that the Pharisees' slavery to the Sabbath was misplaced. The Sabbath was made for man, not vice versa. And if the healing happened on a Sabbath, that would not frustrate the purposes of the Sabbath, that would fulfill the purposes of the Sabbath. So Jesus called the man up uh, into the center of the crowd. I bet the man was nervous too. Uh, Jesus is standing there. What's he going to do? Jesus asks this question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? and they refused to answer. There's silence. Why? Well, Jesus asked them an either-or question, and since no one would claim that it is lawful to do harm or to kill on the Sabbath, the only alternative that they, he left to them was that it was okay uh, to heal, and the Pharisees didn't want to answer him in a way that would give him license to heal on a Sabbath, so they stayed quiet. And so Jesus was angry. He was angry not only at at their lack of compassion for the man, but also toward their legalistic approach to the law, where the letter of the law is so much more important than the spirit of the law. And at the same time, he had compassion for this man who had the withered hand. And so uh, he told the man, stretch out your hand. And immediately it was healed. And if we're going to find any hypocrisy in this entire passage, how about verse 6? Apparently, it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath, but it's okay to go out and plot murder against somebody on the Sabbath. That's how the Pharisees thought. Uh, So uh, that's, that's their legalism. That's the kind of logic that it drove them to. And how can it be that saying stretch out your hand is work, right? That's not work. Uh, It's just that the Pharisees uh, had this idea of what could be done on the Sabbath and to heal that constituted work in their minds. And so what do they do? They go out and they plot with the Herodians of all people uh, to figure out how they're going to kill Jesus. Now, who are the Herodians? They are not a religious group. They are people who are loyal to Herod and Herod Antipas in this particular instance, uh, who was over them. uh, They hated Herod and Herod Antipas because he was Roman's puppet. Uh, the Romans puppet. And so they would never have anything to do with each other under normal circumstances. But here they found a common enemy and that person was Jesus. And so they go out and try to plot what they're going to do. So Let's just recap these five controversies. Uh, Jesus healed a paralytic and forgave his sins. Jesus called uh, Levi, uh, the much-hated Levi, a tax collector as a disciple, and then ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus didn't fast when the Pharisees thought that he should. His disciples picked grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Uh, And so in each one of these various controversies, Jesus challenged some aspect of the Pharisees' authority and corrected their interpretation. And in some of these, he even claimed the authority of God. And the the scribes and the Pharisees hated him for this. Instead of glorifying God that their Messiah had come, they rejected him and plotted to kill him. Now, murder may seem like a very strange, a very hostile, very over-the-top reaction, perhaps, uh, to what Jesus had done so far. But this is the growing level of hostility against Jesus. And we're only in the beginning of chapter 3, right? We have a long way to go uh, in this gospel. But Jesus, for his part, was not the least bit intimidated by what these scribes and Pharisees were doing. It was all part of the plan because Jesus came on a mission to advance the kingdom of God and and the threats and the jealousy of the scribes and Pharisees wouldn't stop him at all. And so even though these Sabbath claims and the other things that Jesus said and did would eventually lead to his crucifixion and his death, Jesus forged on, undeterred by the antagonism, because this is how he planned to save the world. Now, what might this all mean for us? Let's close with a couple of applications. The first one is this. We ought to expect opposition Uh, Jesus warned about this, right? If if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Uh, So are we willing to continue in the face of persecution? Will we withstand it boldly uh, as Jesus did, uh, regardless of what our opponents do to us? True disciples do not wither in the face uh, of challenges. And that doesn't mean we go around looking for fights. You know, we're not not going around picking fights with people. Uh, But it does mean that we don't shrink back from persecution either. Uh, We need to be prepared for this. Jesus said, it's coming. It's going to happen. So be prepared. Uh, So we would all be wise to teach our children, to teach our grandchildren that persecution is coming. We can't shelter them from this if they are going to be true disciples. So don't shelter your kids from it or your grandkids from it. Prepare them for it. It is coming. Jesus promised it. So expect opposition. Secondly, beware of legalism. This is another one I could probably use every single week. Uh, this, is, this is what Jesus is arguing with the scribes and Pharisees about. So let's just think about this from our own standpoint. <clears throat> is there anything that you are doing uh, to earn favor with God that you think is earning favor in God's eyes? Are there any little rules that you keep that that, that, think that, that that you think that, well, you know, God is really going to be pleased with me for this, or, or any little rules that you insist that other people keep, that you impose on them, uh, because that's what you think makes a good disciple? Uh, I think it's easy uh, to fall into this trap, and I think Lent is a prime example of, of, of what can happen uh, during this season. Uh, It's sacrificial to give up something that you enjoy, uh, something that's not sinful. Uh, Let's say chocolate is the thing that you decide to give up for 40 days. Now, if you eat chocolate every day, then every time you don't eat chocolate, well, then you can use that as an opportunity to say, uh, I'm sacrificing at this moment. I'm not eating chocolate, and it reminds me of my Savior's sacrifice for me. And that's a great thing to do if you want to do that. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. But if every time you don't eat chocolate, you're making a mental note in your head about what a great Christian you are, and how lucky God is to have you on his side, uh, and and how he really should reward you for for what a sacrificial person you are, and come to think of it, why don't all Christians give up chocolate like me? Well, that's legalism, right? That's legalism. That's where you're turning the corner. So if you're trying to earn salvation or gain favor with God by by rule-keeping, well, you're a Pharisee, and that does not earn salvation with God. We don't earn his favor by works, by rule keeping, by ritual. We earn favor with grace, uh, with God by grace, by believing in his son, uh, who died on the cross for our sins and trusting in him alone for our salvation. And if you believe that, you're not a Pharisee, you're a Christian. So beware of legalism. And third, uh, be a new creation. Now, we are new creations if we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Our Christian faith is not uh, the old life of sin with Christ tacked onto it, right? It's not just an add-on. Our lives are completely new, and they should be surrendered to God for service to him. We should look different. Our lives should be a testimony of service to him and a witness to others. So I've been thinking about this this week, and over the past couple weeks, I've been praying every morning that that, uh, I, I have come up with this little acronym. Uh, and and what i would like to do as i continue to think through this is is how i'm going to pray every morning Uh, and what i what i have is that i'm I'm going to try to make every day a day where i am productive reflective and attractive so let me tell you what that means Uh, productive means that i want to do something productive every day for god's kingdom Uh, hopefully more than one thing i hope my whole days are spent being productive for god's kingdom I also want to uh, be reflective of God's love for me. I want want, uh, God's love for me to be reflected to the world, uh, that they would see uh, that, that God has done something in me. And that ought to result in being attractive. I should be attractive. That means people see something in me that's different and they want to know why. So I was kind of stuck on this productive, uh, reflective, attractive. And then I realized, you know, I'm pretty close to having a, a pretty cool ac- acronym here. So I need a Y word. I need a Y word. Yeah. So my Y word is going to be yearn. Uh, I've added yearn to this, that I would yearn each day to draw nearer and nearer to the presence of God. And so now my acronym is complete. Uh, productive, reflective, attractive, yearn, pray. That is my personal goal as a disciple. What's yours? What's yours? Uh, So I challenge you this week to try and think of something like this. What does your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ look like? Write it out, uh, not to earn God's favor, but as something to guide you uh, as you're thinking about, uh, especially in this Lent season, as we're coming up to Easter, uh, what does being a disciple look like to you? Uh, We ought not look like Pharisees. We ought to look like new creations, uh, people that uh, Jesus can use to go out into the world and make disciples. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you for uh, these passages, uh, these five controversies that we've been looking at these past two weeks, these conflicts that Jesus had with the Pharisees that show uh, how they were legalistic and also point out how we can be legalistic too, Lord. I pray that uh, you will use these passages to, to help sharpen us, to, to show us uh, where perhaps we are doing things to try to earn your favor by works, by rituals, uh, as opposed to just uh, resting in the grace of uh, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you that, that our salvation is accomplished. We are not accomplishing it, uh, but it is already accomplished uh, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. Uh, Lord, help us to become more Christ-like. Help us to be better disciples, Lord, and help us to make disciples. Uh, for that is why we are here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.